Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the high Baltic Cathedral in the city of Rams in northeastern France, the Dauphin lies prostrate on the black and white tiled marble floor before the altar. Gone are his rich clothes. Instead, he's dressed only in a white shirt, opened at the chest. Only four months earlier, he had been contemplating fleeing the country, defeated by a foreign enemy and losing his crown to a mere boy. Now, he was about to become a king. The most elaborately clothed man in sight is the archbishop, who approaches, kneels and daubs his head, breast, shoulders and arms with holy oil, initially brought to the cathedral by angels a thousand years before. This is how his father had been crowned, and his, all the way back to the days of the Franks. He stands, and is now garbed in blue velvet, and is further anointed. He kneels once more. Gloves are placed on his hands, a ring on his finger, and finally he is given the symbols of office, the scepter symbolising kingly power, and the sword, the hand of justice in the other. The archbishop turns towards him and makes the final act, placing the crown on top of his head. These were not the regalia that crowned the French kings of old. Those still lay in enemy hands. Charles knew this. He knew the crown on his head was not that of Charlemagne. It rankled that a boy king in England still held that. But even a limited occasion such as this would have been unthinkable as recently as six months before. He looks to his side and sees the reason why they were all there today. A slender, armoured figure, her breastplate shining like the sun, holding a white banner that today was limp in the still cathedral, but before had been flying in the heat of battle. Joan of Arc kneels at his feet, to the man she had finally seen crowned king, and says... Noble king, God's will is done.
Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 3.9, Joan of Arc, God's Will is Done. Last time, we saw how a teenage peasant woman convinced a prince that she could be the saviour of France. Following hearing voices she claimed were from angels, and after undergoing weeks of spiritual and physical examination, she was sent out of the head of an army to relieve the besieged city of Orléans. Today comes the incredible tale of how Joan turned the course of the Hundred Years' War and saw her Dauphin crowned King of France. But before we get going with that, I'd like to let you know that I recorded a one-hour interview with Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast. We chatted about Tudor Queens and how they compared with one another. It was a lot of fun. The episode has been posted on her podcast feed, and I'll put a link in the show notes. I'd also like to thank all my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The English army had been besieging Orléans for now six months. They had endured a hard winter, and there were too few to cut off the city off effectively. Its inhabitants couldn't come and go as they wished, but at the same time the English couldn't stop limited supplies from coming in. That said, everyone knew Orléans couldn't last much longer, and once the city had been taken, the door to central and southern France would be wide open for the English. The chance of fame and booty kept those soldiers dedicated to their task. But now, on the 29th of April, 1429, they were distracted. Not by the city, but by a movement in the forest to the southwest. The English had been fighting the French for decades, but these men emerging from the trees looked like nothing they had ever seen before. At their vanguard were not knights, but priests, carrying the banner of the crucifixion. They sang not war songs, but the hymn Veni Creator Spiritus. Behind them came the soldiers, but there were only 500 of them. The besiegers outnumbered them ten to one. But the oddest thing was the figure at their centre. A young woman, Joan of Arc, her armour gleaming bright. She was well known to her enemies, The letter that she had sent to their commander, the Duke of Bedford, had told him and the army to leave France or die. It had been read out to them at the campfires and had been treated with disdain. Who was this woman, this peasant, to call them out? They had swept aside armies led by dukes and counts and even kings. They would make mincemeat of this trumped-up little harlot who dared to challenge them. As Joan rode towards Orléans, Over the noise of the priests, she would have heard catcalls, jeers and insults. And these only increased as, instead of marching towards the army, they marched to the east. But soon, the method in their madness was revealed, as from the city itself came a violent sortie. 
As the English rushed to defend themselves and push back this attack, Joan and her entourage slipped into the city. She was met with jubilant celebrations, and not just because she had brought food, men and supplies. She was mobbed by men, women and children, all straining to place their hands on the woman they believed would be their salvation. Most of the soldiers that she had brought with her marched back from whence they came. No point, it seemed, in adding extra mouths to feed in a starving city. Progress for Joan was slow, surrounded as she was by well-wishers, but finally she reached her lodgings. But she felt no satisfaction at having entered the city. She was furious. She had been angry ever since the troops that had escorted her to the city had marched off rather than entering it. She wanted to attack now, smash the English and drive them away. She had been notionally appointed commander of the armies of France, but she had no formal authority over the men in command, and that included the man who was in charge of Orléans. He was Jean de Dunois, better known as the Bastard of Orléans, due to him being an illegitimate son of the Duke of Orléans. He was not willing to bet his life and his city on the visions of this mere woman whom he'd only just met. He wants to believe, of course he did, but he knew that he needed more men if he was to have any chance of victory. So, the following day, he slipped out of the city and raced after the men who had brought Joan. He would need every man at his disposal if Joan was to have her battle. So, this meant that Joan had a bit of time on her hands, but being Joan, she wasn't going to take it easy. Nope. She wrote another angry letter to the English, again demanding that they shove off out of France, as well as release the man who had delivered her first letter, who they had in custody. The English agreed to the latter, but impolitely declined to break off the siege, calling her a trollop who should go herd her cattle and leave warfare to the professionals. Joan was so angry on receiving this reply that she climbed the battlements and shouted insults down at the English, telling them to surrender to God who was on her side. But of course she was only met with more derision and insults. But, to the people of Orléans, she was not a figure of ridicule. She was a messiah. She was thronged everywhere she went. And then came something that proved to any waverers that God really was on their side. For ages, prevailing winds had prevented French shipping from reaching the city to bring food and supplies. But, as soon as Joan arrived, the winds changed. For any doubters left, this was the divine confirmation that they had been waiting for. On the 4th of May, the bastard returned with Joan's men and they quickly dove into battle, seizing some outer fortifications that the English controlled. This was Joan's first taste of war, as she sallied forth from the city with banner in hand and rode beside the bastard. Now, usually at this point, I say that this isn't a military history podcast, and skip to the end of the fighting. But, as Joan was a military commander, of sorts, I can't get away with that little cop-out. Joan had seen skirmishes and raids before in her home village, but this was the first time she had seen a real battle, albeit a relatively minor one. She did not kill anyone. Indeed, she didn't even raise her sword in anger, 
but it must have been an overwhelming experience for her. Asked about it later, she replied that she was always confident in any engagement because God had willed her to fight and had foretold her victory. That night, she wrote one final letter to the English. This would be their third and final warning. Quote, You men of England, who have no right in this kingdom of France, the King of Heaven orders and commands you, through me, Joan the Maid, to abandon your strongholds and go back to your country. If not, I will make a war cry that will be remembered forever. She tied the letter to an arrow and bade an archer fire it into the English camp. It was met with the same derision and catcalling as had all her other messages. Two days later, Joan prepared her men for the final battle. Since this was a divine mission, the army spent the morning not in training or going over tactics, but in prayer. Priests sung masses, the men gave their confession, and then they readied themselves for the task. These soldiers have been transformed from beleaguered and ragged men on the brink of defeat into holy warriors. They were on a crusade, though they never used the term, against the English. God was with the maid. God was with them. The battle itself is quite a complicated one, but essentially the main fighting centred around three locations on three days. The first was the fortress of Saint-Loup to the east of the city, which was easily retaken by the French. The next one was a little more tricky, a more formidable fortress called the Augustines to the south. Joan was once again in the thick of the fighting. Once again she did not raise her sword, but she bore her banner high, using it and her own encouragement to urge her soldiers on. Indeed, she was so immersed in battle that an English archer shot her in the foot, but she was not badly hurt. The bastard urged her to sit out the next day's battle, which would be the fiercest yet, but of course Joan shrugged him off. No one would deny her victory, especially not some impudent English arrow. The final engagement was over the bridge and the fortifications at its far end called Les Tourelles. This was where most of the English troops had gone and were now surrounded. The besiegers were now under siege. Wave after wave of Joan's troops broke on Les Tourelles, but the English beat them all back. As Joan urged them on for another assault, she was hit by another arrow, this time between the neck and the shoulder. This was no mere flesh wound, and she fell, covered in blood, to the ground. Her men faltered, and the bastard called a retreat, but Joan rose, picked up her standard, and once more charged towards the fortress and began climbing a ladder, a one-woman assault. She was quickly joined by her men, whose fervour reached new heights. Joan had taken a wound that would have felled a knight, but she kept fighting on. They would bring her now the victory that she had promised. By the time the sun set, Les Tourelles was in French hands and the siege was broken. The remaining English soldiers retreated. For six months the English had besieged Orléans and for 14 years France had not won a significant victory. Now, after just four days, Joan of Arc had delivered both to France and her Dauphin. To the Armagnacs, this was the sign for which they had been waiting. 
For theologians, this was vindication that they had been right, that Joan's coming was a sign of divine favour. For the French people, this was confirmation of the propaganda, that this maid really was a messenger from God. And her fame spread quickly. This was the JFK assassination of its time. The news rippled all across Europe and everyone was talking about this teenager who had won such a major victory. We have found letters in Flanders, Rome, Venice and many other places speaking with incredulity and reverence of who Joan was and what she had achieved. They contain knowledge of her whole story, showing that the propaganda spread from Chinon was seeping into every corner of Europe. Jean de Gerson, the man whose profit checklist had proved Joan to be the real deal, rushed off a new treatise called De Puella Orianesi, or about the Maid of Orléans. He said that, quote, Her actions appear more divine than human. It compared Joan to biblical heroines like Deborah, Judith and St Catherine, and argued the victory at Orléans proved that Joan was the real deal. She did not resort to tricks or evil magic, but instead inspired faith in God and France. She was a virgin, and therefore pure. And though she wore men's clothes and armour, that could be excused because she was carrying out God's will. Now, far be it from an Englishman to reign on the parade of a French victory, but there were a few good reasons why Joan won, and it can't all be put down to high morale and aggressive tactics. First of all, the army besieging Orléans was not large enough to properly encircle it. That was why the city had not fallen before Joan had arrived. Moreover, it had just been weakened after the Burgundian contingent had left following a disagreement between them and the English. This had been why Joan had been able to slip into the city and then lead all those sorties against lightly defended fortresses. The English were spread too thinly, and that was what gave Joan's men the edge. But, all of that said, it can be argued that without Joan, the French forces may not have been so aggressive, taken so many chances. Without her inspiration, would the French morale have held? Would they have pressed their attack when they took on significant casualties. It is doubtful, and people at the time had no doubt that it was Joan what won the day. The scenes in Orléans after the English defeat and retreat were of absolute delirium. Men that had expected to die in defence, women and daughters who would have been victims of the ravages of victorious soldiers, everyone thronged the streets in celebration. But while everyone around her celebrated, and the scribes and bards furiously wrote and sung her praises around the country, Joan was already restless. She had not come all this way, endured such humiliations and risked her life just to save one city. This was just the first step on her path to destiny, and she wanted to march immediately to take the fight to the English and Burgundians. However, it was not until three days later that she rode out with the Bastard of Orléans to meet the jubilant king and plan the next move. 
she was clear what that should be. Fight their way northeast to the city of Rams. Our Lady of Rams, the cathedral in this throat killer of a place, was the traditional place where French kings were crowned. A tradition dating back to when the Frankish king Clovis was baptised into the Christian faith in the early 6th century. The city had been lost to the English after Agincourt, and between it and Joan at Chinon lay 250 miles of mostly enemy territory. English garrisons would have to be driven away, and an army that would need to be prepared that could take on the inevitable counterattack. This meant that Joan had to kick her heels for a month while Charles and his advisers scrounged together the money, men and equipment needed for the enterprise. Of course, Joan didn't waste this time. She spent it on a crash course in warfare. Either by divine intervention or blind luck, she had survived the relief of Orléans, but there were greater challenges ahead, and she would need to know how to handle herself in a fight. An exiled French nobleman, Guy de Laval, encountered Joan during this time and related the experience to his mother. And you can see in his words the effect that she had on people and the progress she was making as a warrior. Quote, I left with the king to come to Celle en Berry, and the king made the maid come before him, who had been at Celle before. Some say that I was favoured because I saw her. The maid gave a very warm welcome to my brother and myself, fully armoured except for her head, and holding a lance in her hand. Afterwards, I went to see her at her lodging. She had wine brought, and said to me that she would soon make me drink it in Paris. It all seemed entirely divine, her deeds, and to go and see her. She left cell that morning at Vespers to go to Roumorin-Matin, three leagues away, scouting ahead with the Marshal of Bouzac a great number of men-at-arms and common people. And I saw her completely covered by plate armour, except for her head, a small axe in her hand, mounted on horseback. If you remember from Orléans, she only bore her battle, she did not carry weapons. Well now, she was armed, and had a war horse to fight. Later in the letter, de Laval also relates how she tamed a horse, using language usually reserved in hagiographies of saints. He said that her horse was, quote, a great black charger, which reared up fiercely at the entrance of her lodging and would not allow her to mount. Then she said, take him to the cross, which is in front of the church down the street. There she mounted him without moving, as if he had been tied. She then turned to the church door and said in a quiet female voice, you priests and churchmen lead a procession and prayers to God and then she returned the way she had come. Finally, in early June, Joan and her army were ready. The man in command was the Duke of Alençon, with the bastard of Orléans as one of his captains. He may be giving the orders, but there was no doubt who it was that inspired the men. It was their maid. Their campaign was quick and decisive. At the first town of Jargot, they laid siege and Joan once again sent one of her trademark letters calling the English to surrender and leave France. It was rejected, like all the others, but without any of the mockery or jeering. Joan's fame had reached English ears, and no one was laughing at her now. 
Joan once again led the assault on the town and was once more wounded, this time by a stone missile at the base of the wall. And yet again, she got up, waved her banner and urged the men forward, saying, quote, Friends, friends, our Lord has condemned the English. Now they are ours. Have good courage. It seemed that every time the English tried to kill her and she survived, it only went to further prove that God favoured her. The town fell soon after. The Duke of Alençon, at Joan's nullification trial in 1456, recalled in his deposition that, quote, Joan told him to leave that spot, because if he did not go, that cannon would kill you, while pointing at a cannon installed in the town. He moved, and shortly afterwards, in the same spot that he had left, a certain Lord of Lude was killed by that cannon. It was at that moment that the commander of the French army truly believed in Joan. The next town surrendered after even a relief army was too small to threaten the French. And the fortress of Mung, the last English bastion in the region, was abandoned as well. Tired of retreating, the English army under John Falstaff and John Talbot made their stand near the village of Patay. The result was a massacre, with French cavalry finally getting the better of the English longbow. Three English commanders were captured, with Falstaff only just getting away. In just two weeks, Joan of Arc and her men had driven the English out of the Loire Valley and inflicted heavy casualties. Some of the books that I have read on this can get a little bit carried away and suggest that Joan masterminded these victories. It seems reasonably clear to me that she did not. She was no strategist. She had no military training in command. Her value was quite different. She was not the head, the brain of the operation. Instead, she was the heart, the soul, and the pointed sword. Her aggression, her courage, and her firm, unbending conviction in her destiny and mission is what carried the French army to victory and sent shivers down the spines of her enemies. These successes finally compelled the Dauphin Charles to leave the safety of his court and begin his coronation journey. The army he joined was the largest and most spirited that his faction had yet put together. It was filled with willing recruits whom Joan had inspired. Despite her role in putting together all of this, Joan's victory was almost taken from her. The Dauphin's advisers cautioned against marching on Rams, instead saying that they should take the fight to the English heartlands in Normandy. But Joan was adamant that Charles must be crowned at Rams. That was her divinely appointed task, and only then, as king anointed by God, could he command the loyalty of all French men and women. So, to Rams they went. At every enemy-controlled town and city that they passed, Joan made the same offer. Quote, Loyal Frenchmen, come before King Charles. And if you act in this way, you will not be at fault and need not fear for your lives or property. If you do not do this, I promise you and certify upon your lives that we will enter, with God's help, all the towns that should belong to this holy kingdom and establish a good, firm peace there, whoever comes against us. 
I commend you to God. May he watch over you, if it please him. Note the quasi-crusader language here. She is essentially saying that she led the army of Christ, and all that opposed her were heretics. At some towns, like Auxerre, this veil threat worked, and they surrendered without a fight. At others, such as Troyes, it didn't. At Troyes, a fiery friar by the name of Brother Richard had been decrying Joan to crowds, calling her a witch and the Antichrist, urging women to burn their vain possessions to seek deliverance. The leads of the town therefore thought him an ideal man to speak to her and relate her evil firsthand to the people. Unfortunately, when he returned, he was utterly starstruck, calling her a true messenger of God. This, and the large enemy army outside the walls, led to desertions and defections in the city garrison. But the besiegers had problems too. They were low on cash and artillery, and there was no guarantee that they could take the city without sustaining unacceptable losses. Most of the king's advisers were in favour of retreating back to the Loire until they were better prepared. But Joan furiously objected. She could not understand why these men kept harking on about these earthly matters. Why worry about money and munitions when you have God on your side? Why concern yourself with reason if you have faith? Again, let's just note how unusual this is. For a woman, any woman, to influence a council of war is notable. Still less a woman who wasn't royal. Still less again if she wasn't related to the king. Joan was none of these. She was a peasant girl who less than nine months ago was in the fields of eastern France. Now, she was persuading a king to ignore his advisers and to follow her lead. It never stops being extraordinary. To prove her point, she went out in front of the city walls in full armour and bade the men to prepare to assault. This gesture shattered what was left of Troyes' nerve. They not only surrendered, but wrote the city of Rams that they should follow their lead. No town after Troyes decided to take the French army on. And, as Charles and Joan approached Rams, a delegation from the city met them and bent the knee. The city was theirs. Charles would have his coronation, and it had not cost him a single man in battle. On Sunday, the 17th of July, Charles entered Rams Cathedral for his consecration as king. This would be a very different occasion from the one his father had enjoyed 49 years before. King Charles VI had been crowned using the regalia of Charlemagne, a crown and sword that had been passed down the centuries as a sacred trust of French kingship. Unfortunately, those still lay in Paris with the English, and so alternatives had to be sought. They did, though, have the sacred oil of Clovis, the first Christian king of France, or Francia as it was then, which, to Joan, was more important anyway. His father's coronation had been a magnificently grand affair, attended by all the nobility of France, including all its dukes. However, for Dauphin, some of the dukes, most notably that of Burgundy, were not on his side, and so standards had to be used to fulfil their roles in the ceremony. The same was true of the bishops, 
three of whom were still loyal to England. But the most significant difference was the presence of a woman at the altar with the king. Other than wives, no woman had ever held such a position of prominence at a French coronation. France never had, and still has never had, a female ruler of any kind. You can argue this is the closest it has ever come. Moreover, Joan was not dressed in the regalia of high office. She was instead in full battle armour, her banner in hand. When the Archbishop of Rams placed the crown on Charles's head and proclaimed him as king, Joan was the first to kneel before him and pledge allegiance. As she did so, she burst into tears, the full enormity of her accomplishment perhaps sinking in for the first time. Watching her were all of Charles's generals, including Alençon and the Bastard of Orléans, who had become her most devoted followers. But for Joan, the most important people in attendance were her family, her father, brothers, her cousin's husband and her godfather, all of whom had been brought there and lodged at Charles's expense. This may have been his coronation, but it was Joan's crowning achievement. None of it would have been possible without her, but there was still much left to do. Paris and all of northern France still lay in English hands, and Burgundy, one of the most important French duchies, was still in rebellion against the crown. When Joan had arrived at Chinon, she had come with three promises. To relieve Orléans? Tick. Crown Charles as king? Tick. Drive the English out of France? Well, that was still on the to-do list. The first two goals were everything that a line manager would want of an employee. Simple goals that would be difficult to accomplish, but theoretically possible. But driving the English out of France would be a whole other kettle of fresh. It was a much more complicated task and required careful planning. Over in Paris, the two most important men on the opposing side, the Duke of Bedford and the Duke of Burgundy, met to reaffirm their alliance and plan their next move. This meeting was more than just a council of war. Charles and Joan had been working hard to persuade the Duke of Burgundy to switch sides and join their fight against the English. And Bedford knew that he could not win against a united France. So he invoked the spirit of the Duke of Burgundy's father, the man who had been murdered under flag of parley by Charles. And it worked. For now at least, Burgundy would stay loyal to England. Though it's fair to say that by now, it was more of a silent partner than an active one. They further agreed that the capital must not be allowed to fall, and Bedford set about preparing its defences, strengthening its walls, artillery and garrison, while Burgundy returned to his capital. Bedford wrote a message to the people of Paris, decrying Joan as being a, quote, superstitious and reprobate character, and further describing her as a, quote, sluttish woman of ill repute, dressed as a man and dissolute in her conduct. But words alone would not stop Joan's army, and by the 14th of August it had reached Saint-Lee, about 26 miles from the capital, where they found the English dug in and holding a strong defensive position. For a full day, the armies paraded in front of each other, daring one another to attack, but not willing to take the initiative themselves. 
Once again, Charles's generals urged caution. English control was weakening over Normandy. Cities were wavering. But if they were to attack and lose, that might undo all the work they had done. Time was on their side. They should not risk battle. In a shock turn of events, Joan was thoroughly mystified and outraged by this timidity and demanded that the army attack. She herself rode right up to the enemy lines, banner in hand, trying to provoke them into doing something rash. This time, however, she did not get her wish. And the next day, Bedford marched his army away to defend Paris and relieve some besieged cities. His point, though, had been made. This French army was not invincible, and Joan was not a miracle worker. And there were voices in the Armagnac camp that were beginning to doubt her. Now that the king had been crowned, they wondered if her mission had not now been completed, and that her divine guidance was now fully depleted. But she still had the support of the king and his military commander, Alençon, and for now, that's what mattered. The French army, in a rather pedestrian fashion, mopped up some small towns on the outskirts of Paris, before finally arriving before the capital in early September. The army numbered some 10,000, outnumbering the defenders by at least two to one, but the fortifications were formidable. Bedford was not in the city. He was in Normandy, but was gathering his forces to relieve the capital. So, if Charles was to take Paris, he would have to do it quickly, which was, of course, music to Joan's ears. As was her custom, she donned full armour and rode with her banner to the city walls, exhorting the citizens of Paris to throw off their occupiers and join her cause. This had worked, of course, at Troyes and many other towns, but not here. The assault came on the 8th of September, at the Porte Saint-Honoré, near the Louvre Palace. It was an extremely bloody affair. The cannons roared, the men shouted and yelled as they advanced, screaming as arrows and artillery rounds hit them. Joan was in the thick of the action, urging her men forward into a ditch in front of the walls, exhausting them to fill it with wooden bundles as a makeshift parkway. All around her, arrows, stones and cannonballs fell in a storm of wood, metal and masonry. Her soldiers fell all around her, but Joan, shining bright in her distinctive armour and her white banner flying, seemed impervious to harm. She was there for hours, doing all she could to reach the walls. But it was a ditch too far for the Armagnacs. As her soldiers fell back, she yelled out at the men on the walls, quote, Surrender to us quickly, in the name of Jesus! For if you do not surrender before nightfall, we will come in there by force, whether you like it or not, and you will all be put to death without mercy. Over the sound of cannon and screaming came a voice in reply. Shall we, you bloody tart? And with it came a crossbow bolt that hit her in the thigh, causing her to stagger back in pain. Next came two more shots that hit her standard bearer one of which got him between the eyes, killing him instantly. Even then she wanted to stay, exhorting her men forward for one final attack, but she had to be bodily dragged from the battlefield, screaming that they were interfering with God's will. 
Joan had had her battle. And she had lost. Now it was time to do it the way Charles's advisers wanted. They were sure that they could obtain peace with Burgundy. They had already negotiated a partial truce, and Charles had to maintain the strength of his position to complete his charm offensive. So Charles would quit while he was still ahead, garrison the towns he had taken, and retreat to the Loire to regroup for the following year's campaigning season. Joan was forced to join the king's retreat, aware that the doubters around him were growing in number and strength. In addition, this latest wound was more severe than all the others, and it took a long time to heal. She still had allies, but they were now outnumbered by the doubters. Charles had agreed to a Hail Mary strategy with Joan, and had kept gambling while his luck had held. But now he had a lot more to lose, and so was inclined to listen to those who urged him to sideline Joan. She was sent at the head of a small force to mop up some minor towns and forts in central France during the autumn. But that was more to do with keeping her out of the way rather than anything else. You can tell that, perhaps, her spirits were waning from a letter that she sent to the town of Rheum, in which she stated that her men were low on arrows, gunpowder and supplies and urgently requested that they help or she would have to break off the siege of a nearby enemy stronghold called La Charité. The Joan of the summer would never have dreamed of asking for such a thing. Petty matters like ammunition and food were the matters of mortals, not holy crusaders. Unfortunately, it turned out that even God's warriors needed arrows to shoot and food to eat. But it was not all bad news for Joan. In December 1429... Charles granted a unique honour to Joan and her family by raising them to the rank of nobility. This was not a mere paper title. This was a permanent elevation in social class for all the men and, highly unusually, the women of the Ark family, now and for the future. They were now members of the warrior aristocracy. This was given, the Charter of a Nobleman says, in recognition of the singular service Joan had performed for France and the divine favour she possessed. While this was an enormous honour and a wonderful way to cap off an utterly extraordinary year for Joan, it also has a sense of finality about it. This was a congratulations for a job well done, a job that, perhaps for her, was now completed. In early 1430, she was back with the king, and resembled a caged tiger, forever pacing and raging, wanting to be thrown back into the fight, and perplexed by the cautious strategy pursued by Charles. In the Middle Ages, it was highly unusual to fight during the winter, and so the months of rain and cold were spent politicking, negotiating, and strategizing, with all eyes on Burgundy to see if his truce with Charles would be renewed, if he would go fully over to the French side, or if he would double down on his alliance with England. Joan was continually getting letters from allies in the towns that she had captured, all of them fearing English reprisals should they fall to the Duke of Bedford. But she could do nothing to alleviate their concerns other than offer them encouragement and rhetoric. But what they needed was men and equipment, and she could offer them neither. 
Finally, though, in the spring of 1430, Charles let Joan off the leash once more. The men she led, though, would not be a grand royal army like in the previous year. This was a smaller force of a few hundred, dispatched to bolster the garrison of the town of Compagne near Amiens in northeastern France. From there, she launched a series of raids on English territory. But while this was happening, diplomatic manoeuvrings convinced the Duke of Burgundy that his lot was better spent with England rather than France, and so war was redeclared between him and Charles. This forced Joan to retreat back to Compagne, a town that was now on the front lines once more. It stood on an important strategic crossroads between the Norman capital of Rouen, Armagnac-controlled Rams, and Paris. Burgundy would need to take the town, and Joan was not going to give it up without a fight, and neither were its citizens who were entirely behind her. As the Burgundians approached, Joan went out with a small party to gather reinforcements, but when she returned, she found her route back to the town blocked. In her mind, though, this was just like at Orléans the year before. She would need to fight her way in. She led a furious attack on enemy lines, but she was running into a trap. An unseen Burgundian division emerged from behind, catching her in a pincer. She yelled, encouraged, threatened and fought, but she would not escape this time. She was pulled from her saddle, and before her enemy could drive his sword home, she offered him her submission. She was a knight now, after all. This was granted, and she left the field of battle a prisoner of Burgundy. The chronicler, Enguerrand de Monstrelet, was with the Burgundians at the battle and met Joan shortly after. He wrote a message to the people of Anglo-Burgundian France. Quote, By the will of our blessed creator, the woman known as the maid has been captured. Her capture, we are certain, will be great news and will demonstrate the error and foolish credulity of all those who have let themselves be convinced by the deeds of this woman. And we are writing to give you this news, hoping that you will find herein joy, comfort and consolation, and that you will give all due thanks and praise to our said creator, who sees and knows all things. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.